Welcome to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Sarah Hunter and I'm our Connections Associate here at Rolling Hills. As we continue exploring Ephesians 6, we'll be hearing from Pastor Nick and learning about the armor of God and how we can use it in our daily lives. Our prayer is that this series will equip you with the tools you need to face your daily spiritual battles. Now let's hear from Pastor Nick. Good morning. I do echo what Eric said. Congratulations for making it here and any of the other places that you had to go this week um, safely as we've looked at Snowpocalypse 2021. We don't know what's coming next, like right? And so it's a good thing that we're in a series on the armor of God. And so if you have your Bibles with you today or you want to tune in, whether it's on our mobile app or checking out the screens or you're going to follow along with the worship guide, we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 as we continue in this storyline. But I got to tell you, I'm going to say something on the outset of this message that some of you are not going to care at all about, and you won't even really know what it is. And others of you are literally not going to be able to think about anything else from the moment I say it. Are you ready? I have been watching the TV show WandaVision. Some of you don't even know what this is, and that's okay. It's basically a television show that connects back to the Marvel comics and all of those movies, Iron Man, Thor, Captain America, the whole nine yards, to like B-level characters, and I won't give any spoilers today as to what it's about. But the people who really understand, because it's a complicated TV show, and I will invite those of you who don't care anything about Marvel comics or superheroes to maybe check it out, because every episode is mocked after some old-school sitcom Back in, like, so you're watching the first episode and you're like, y'all, that looks like Dick Van Dyke. And you're watching the next episode and you're like, I feel like that's I Love Lucy. And then it kind of just continues to go on and on progressively until they get to like modern day television shows like, hey, I feel like that's the theme show of The Office. And it is because they're following along. But you're Googling stuff. Like unless you're a comic book nerd, I'm not judging you, and you know all that stuff and all the ways that that piece is together, you're having to get on Wikipedia like me to figure out how in the world all this stuff is connected to the movies, how it's connected to the comic book how it's connected to a whole bunch of characters that you've never heard of. And as I was connecting the dots, Wikipedia, during the middle of the episode, I'm reminded of this game that I played when I was a kid. Because in church, which was really boring, I hope that you never say that about Rolling Kills. It is literally one of the efforts that we make that church should, it's like a belief system. Like, we don't think church should ever be boring. It should be that place that we want to go and that we want to engage and that we want to be together. Well, I grew up in a church, so it's boring. And so my mom, literally, in order to make sure that we didn't do anything bad and disruptive in the middle of the service, because we're literally laid out on, like, hard wooden benches, she would do a bunch of dots on the back of the worship guide where the prayer requests were supposed to go, and then she would let us play this connect the dots game while we were supposed to be listening to church. Okay, whatever. So like we would literally play, and if you made a full square, you got to put your initial in that square as if you now owned it, and at the end of the game, which would be 30 minutes of a sermon later, You would count up all the places where you had your initials to declare a winner. It was the Cracker Barrel Kids menu before there was a Cracker Barrel Kids menu. She just made a game for you to play so that you didn't get distracted and you could be patient and wait till the end of the day. I'm looking at those connected dots between this TV show that I now fanatically like. And also amidst a word that I'm passionately in love with. And I'm saying we have to connect some dots. 
We have to literally connect some dots together between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Things that we don't think necessarily go together until we find out why they go together. In fact, that they do go together. Parts of the story that you're unfamiliar with, that you're Wikipediaing in the moment. Incidentally, don't Wikipedia the Bible. Like, there are better sources out there than that, but you understand what I'm talking about. Like, you're literally looking stuff up to find out why this person matters and why this word matters and why this story comes together. We need to connect the dots. And here's what I believe. I believe that when we're better at connecting the parts, the dots of all of these pieces of word together, you're better at connecting your life to it. Like when you can connect the the parts of God's word together, you are far better at connecting your life to it. And when when you get a little bit proficient at connecting your life to it, then you're ready to submit your life to it. We don't like that word submission because we're in America. We don't want to be the people that surrender or the people who lose or the people who it seems like give up. That submission word is, is ultimately a really, really good word. I think submission is a word that you and I like to offer to God conditionally. We like to say to the great God of this universe, okay, I'm going to pick and choose the parts of this word that are a little bit easier but seem like I'm doing hard things, and I'll submit to those. But the parts that require like all-out sacrifice, battle, persecution, even death, those are the kinds and the parts of submission that I don't necessarily want a part of. Like we're okay offering to the world some base-level kindness that says, okay, I'm supposed to be kind because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and so I'm actually going to kick that up a notch and go one extra level of kindness and offer forgiveness where it's not even earned or warranted. Like I'm going to be that guy. I offered forgiveness. But what about the one who submits to like violent persecution and and even even death? I think that's the type of connected dots that the Apostle Paul was speaking about when he when he when he wrote these words, when he penned this letter to the church at Ephesus. I, I think that's the kind of submission that this audience in this day would have understood. That's the kind of submission that a fellow named Polycarp who lived from 70 AD, he was literally discipled by the apostles. John literally invested in his life from 70 AD to 156 AD. He was the bishop of Smyrna, a province in this whole Roman region. He was literally furthering the cause of the church. They call him one of the church fathers with Ignatius, like all these people that did an incredible work to make sure that you and I still get to have a church today, like after Peter and after Tom, like all of those guys who literally walked with Jesus, there had to come another generation after that that furthered the cause of the church. Well, Polycarp was one of those guys. He witnessed the martyrdom of this saint, a young kid named Germanicus, who was literally eaten by lions in a Roman Colosseum because they made it a sport to kill Christians. And on the aftermath of that, he heard the audible voice of God say to him, Polycarp, you will be burned alive. He knew it was coming. And so when the day came, and it was his life on the line, And they invited him to recant and to denounce Jesus. He literally looked at the crowd and said, Jesus has been faithful to me all 86 years of my life. Why would I dare denounce him with the last seconds of it? He had heard those words, you will be burned. He knew what was coming. And so he remained true and he stood strong in his faith, even when they were tying him up and lighting him on fire. And the amazing thing about Polycarp is that he didn't burn to death. He literally just sat there engulfed in flames, and his body was not burning. And so 
One of the soldiers, having pity on him, pierced him with a spear, and his blood poured out. And legend says that his blood actually extinguished the fire. Polycarp was ready to die. And as he's dying, like the, the legend tells us that he hears these words, like he's shouting out, he's hearing these words, audible voice of God saying, Polycarp, play the man. Play the man. We get these words from Second Samuel uh, chapter 10. David is sending his troops into battle, and Joab, the captain of the army, is looking out at his fighting men, and he says these words, be of good courage, and let us play the men for our people and for the cities of our God. We, we like that phrase, like, you're the man, or be the man, play the man. And it's not necessarily a, a gender gap today. We're talking about men and women of God putting on an armor and being willing to sacrifice it all, go beyond just base-level Christian kindness, and, and elevate that to hardcore Christian sacrifice. And so we land in these words that Apostle Paul uses to equip people for that journey. He's not equipping a people to be nice. He's not equipping a people to be kind, although we know that's part of it. He's not equipping a people to be mild. He's equipping a people for battle. And last week, we, we went over a couple of the pieces of the armor of God that he talks about. We looked at the, the, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and, and the feet that are fitted with the shoes that bring the gospel of good peace. And today we land in Ephesians chapter 6, starting with verse 16, a couple of other pieces of armor. It says, in addition to all this, and I gotta stop because I wanna make sure that we know it's not to replace all of that. Like we looked at a belt, we looked at a breastplate, we looked at some shoes. We're not replacing those things. We're not saying, like, you can wear those things or you can wear these things. It's not an optional kind of armor. It's all of it included together. Scripture said last week, we read it, put on the full armor of God. Well, this stuff is included. In addition to everything that we talked about you putting on last week, here we are talking about this today. In addition to all of this, you put it on the full armor of God. It says, take up the shield of faith. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And then verse 17, it says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so, Father, today, what we, what we ask, what we invite, what we hope, what we pray is that you would make this word real to us. You would make this word come alive to us and that we would align our very lives to it that we would understand what it means to submit to it and to sit under it and to live by it and to gladly digest it and proclaim it. Help us to connect the dots, God, and understand better who you are and better who you've called us to be. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. There's a couple of things about this section of the armor of God that I think that we have to hit before we go to the specific pieces of it. And the first is this. We need the full armor. Like it said that, put on the full armor of God in the passage of the Scripture that we're reading. We need the full armor, but we also need the complete word. Like we need the complete word of God. It's written down for us, Paul's words from Luke in Acts chapter 20, verse 27. He's looking at a group of people and he's saying, For I did not shrink from declaring. I did not fail to declare. I didn't hold back from declaring. I didn't like only give you a piece of God's word. I gave you the whole thing. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And that word counsel is a fun one. It's literally the Greek word boule, which every time I say it, I think about New Orleans and like some of the dishes that you can go and order like down in the French Quarter. You're like, I'm going to order a side of boule with my, it just sounds good. It's fitting for this season because we're in the middle of Lent. Like we came off Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, and then we get to Ash Wednesday. And now we're in this 40 day period leading up 
up to Easter of sacrifice, of less, of saying, I want to focus on Jesus. And in order to do that, we definitely need the full armor, but we also need the complete and total word. That word counsel, that word boule, it literally means will or purpose. So Paul's saying to these people, like, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole will of God. I didn't shrink back from you to declaring the whole purpose of God. And, and this whole cool thing is there's a question that we all ask, like, I want to know the purpose of God. I want to know the will of God. I want to know why I'm here, why he put me here, why I'm in this city, why I'm wired the way that I am, why I'm connected to the people that I'm connected to, why the parts of my story that exist are what they are. Like, I want to understand what God's purpose is for my life. And here's what I get, begin to understand. God is not saying anything new to us that is not already validated by what he already said to us. Like, we're not learning something new about God's purpose for our life that is not already evident in God's purpose for his word, and we need all of it. Maybe one of the reasons that we don't understand God's purpose for our life is because we haven't really dived into his word for our life to understand what it says and to connect the parts and the pieces together to understand more fully who he is and who he's called us to be. We got a bullet. We need the full counsel, every single part of this word to understand our purpose for our life. I continue to say over and over again in almost every message series, I said it last week, I'll say it again today, that Augustine told us, if we, if we believe, if we accept, if we trust only the parts of this word that we like, and we reject or ignore or, 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 or just completely reject all the parts of this word that we don't like, it's not the word that we believe, it's ourselves. And so we need it all. We need every single part of it if we're to understand who God is. We need the full armor and we need the full counsel of God's word. We also need the full armor and the whole body, the whole body of believers. Earlier in this letter to Ephesus, not Ephesians chapter 6, but Ephesians chapter 4, he literally looks at people and he says, from him, he's talking about Jesus, the whole body. He's talking about us as the church, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament. You are a ligament. Like every single one of us is part of the body of Christ here. And you grow and you build yourself up in love as each part does its work. We all have a role to play. I love that we've moved, and Eric talked about this just a moment ago. I love that we've moved the idea of calling our, our volunteers and people that serve in different ministry areas. We don't call them volunteers anymore. That would be so easy because we all understand the word volunteer, and we actually call them core team now because we understand where our core strength comes from. I just drew attention to my midsection, which was really unfortunate considering how much I've enjoyed um, over COVID and over Snowmageddon. Like, it's not a good thing. Like, their core strength is what you're zeroing in on. Our core strength as a church comes from Christ working himself out in every single one of our ligaments. That's why our core team for kids ministry, working in preschool and children, they're not just babysitting. They're literally teaching our kids. They're leading worship for our kids. They're doing small group Bible study for kids. They're doing mission project for our kids. That's why right now our middle school and high school kids are downstairs packing up ministry kits for Shower Up, which gives toiletries and needed supplies to homeless people in our city. They're packing up Valentine's bags because we just had a whole week of snow. It's okay to be a week late with stuff. We're packing up Valentine's bags for the kids who come to Preston Taylor Ministries after school here in our church so that they can have a fun Valentine and a, and, and a whole story about how God loves them. And those middle school and high school kids are not down there doing that by themselves. That would be crazy. Who would put a bunch of middle school and high school boys and girls downstairs by themselves with no supervision? No, they're doing it with core team. Core team, two young adult married couples who are down there investing themselves in the next generation. Our, our folks that serve on this worship team, like I, I show up by 7.30 on Sunday mornings. These guys are here, some of them before 6 a.m. 
sound checking, setting up, rehearsing, and praying, getting excited about the service. They come for rehearsal midweek. They, they study and they prep at home. We see these core team believers engage in the life of church so that we can all grow, and we need every single part of that. This morning, I got a text message from Lisa Hand at our first service asking me, not even on the schedule, asking me, hey, do you want me to show up a little early? Because I know you might be shorthanded, and I can come and greet today. We got a core team here, and we need that strong core. It takes every single one of us doing our part. Last week, we talked about the feet and how they are sure, and the Roman soldiers wear these leather straps that have hobnails on the bottom of them with literally nails sticking. It was like cleats for the first century, right? And so when they're marching in their full lines, shoulder to shoulder, armor to armor, they're literally taking every hill, and it's not a dry hill. It's not, it's a muddy hill. Their feet can slip. You don't want that one soldier to slip because if the one soldier slips, the whole line's going with him. It takes every one of us fitted with the armor doing our part. We need the whole armor and the whole council. We need the whole armor and the whole body, our, our whole core team, everybody doing their part. So we land on these three pieces of armor today and what significantly they mean to us. The first is the shield of faith. First is the, the shield of faith. Faith is a word that we say really easily, um, but we exercise very little. I think we don't understand fully what it means. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for. It's, like we, it's not there yet. We're hoping for it. It's confidence in what we hope for, and it's assurance about what we do not see. And I love that Paul uses this as a shield of faith because look at this whole battalion of men. What are they doing with their shields? This is called turtle or tortoise formation. You've got the guys on the perimeter and they've got their shields literally head down to toe right in front of them all the way around the perimeter of this battalion of soldiers. And what are the guys in the middle doing? Every single one of them has got their shields on top. They're forming this tortoise shell or this turtle shell of protection against the attacks of the enemy. Imagine if just one of those shields was compromised. The whole turtle could be taken out. Like, we need that shield of faith. But faith is not just this belief that we have. Faith is an action that we take. Faith involves effort. Faith is something that we exercise on the daily. And ultimately, it's in your notes this morning, faith is its own proof. My daughter, um, the 14-year-old, Susan, my wife, she inspires the kids to, hey, pick a word for your year. A lot of people do this. A lot of people like, like pray and ask God to give them one word for the year and say, this is the word that I'm going to focus on this, is, this year. This is the word that God's going to, I'm going to speak over my life this year. I'm going to ask God to invest in me this year. And she comes and she's ready. You know, it's all New Year's Eve and we're going to share our words. And she says, my word is proof. And she writes, and I asked her permission before I did this, you know, because that'd be weird. The pastor's like reading his daughter's journal on a stage without asking permission, I promise. My goal after 2020, because 2020, is to be the proof of God's love. Because there's people out there in the world that they can't believe that God loves them until somebody demonstrates it to them. My goal after 2020 is to be the proof of God's love. I want to be known and set apart as a Christian. Like, I want, to be, I want that to be the thing that people know about me. I want people to know me by my fruit, the things that are exhibited in my life that are Christ-like character. And she says, how can I do this? I can speak words of life and love and hope for people. I can set an example for others. I can change my first response. What's your first response to a challenge or a problem? Is it to buck up and fight back and complain? Um, maybe it's more like her to 
to be afraid and to shrink back and to be anxious. She wants to change her first response, choose kindness, and then ultimately she wants to, it's the Rolling Hills way, reach out, grow up, and give all to be the absolute proof of God's love. A lot of people out there, they say that they can't have faith because they need proof. Well, the fact that someone has faith in God is proof of God. Because faith, real faith, lasting faith, is ultimately a gift of God. The, the New American Standard Bible of that verse, Hebrews 11.1, 1, says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. We read that. It's the confidence in what we hope for. It's the conviction of things not seen. That word conviction literally means proof. That your faith is the proof of what others can't see. Because the God who gave you that faith, that's all the proof that the world needs. Faith is, is proof which makes ultimately faith a powerful weapon. The shield was not just a defense. The, the shield was a, a weapon itself. You want to press into an enemy line, you put one of those in between you and press in. The shield in and of itself was a powerful weapon against your enemy, and ultimately faith is a really important action. James wrote in James chapter 2, he says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Faith is not just a feeling. Faith is not just a system of beliefs. Faith is not just an ideology. It's literally a forward-moving, enemy-wall-knocking-down kind of faith in the face of danger. Faith, when it's threatened, says two things. First, it says, my God can deliver me. And then it says, even if my God does not deliver me, I will not turn my back on him. That's real faith. It's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We, we call them in scripture, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's their level of faith. When they were thrown into a fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3, they literally looked at Nebuchadnezzar and said these, hey, listen, our God who we serve is able to save us from this fiery furnace, but even if he does not, we still will not bow down to the statue that you set up. It's the faith that Polycarp exists exhibited when he was playing the man burning at the stake saying yes my God can deliver me from this even if he doesn't I will not turn my back on 86 years of his blessings in order to live another minute in this life that kind of faith takes guts it takes sacrifice it takes action the flaming arrows of the enemy one enemy they don't equal deadly blows. Those, those flaming arrows don't equal deadly blows. They're really deliberate distractions. You see, an opposing army would set, like, this, like, non-flammable material where it could just sort of burn on the edge of an arrow, and they would shoot it at you, and it would obviously come at the shields, which had been dipped in water. So a lot of times, if they hit their shield directly, they would extinguish the fire in the moment, which is a great thing, but it would also hit their huts. It would hit their little, I don't know, TPs and like all their banners and their flags and like all that. It's like it could cause, it would set the ground on fire right around them. And so while they're distracted by this fire, that's when the enemy would come in and attack. The fiery darts were not meant to kill the army, they were meant to distract the army from the real attack. You don't believe that's true? Let me introduce you to America. Y'all, we're distracted. The enemy may not be out to kill you as much as he is out to distract you to prevent you from doing the thing that you're called to do in this life according to God's power. You don't believe in distractions? Let me introduce you to a little thing called my iPhone. Social media, WandaVision. Let me introduce you to relationships. Let me introduce you to politics. There are so many distractions out there. 
they're not meant to kill you. They're meant to divert your attention so that you focus on putting out that fire instead of where the real attack comes from. The, the fiery darts of the enemy, they're distractions. And if you can't handle the distractions, you won't withstand the deadly blows when they come. We, we need the shield of faith. We, we also need the helmet of salvation. You know, we get, a, we get a picture in our minds of what armor looks like, right? Like when I think of like armor, I think of a knight. When I think of a knight, I think of a Heath Ledger movie, A Knight's Tale, where they're literally jousting and they put on all this fancy armor and they get these big like j- j- javelins, I don't even know what they are, but they literally hold them, they s- strap them to themselves and they get on top of a horse and they go try to knock everybody else down and the one that falls off is the one that loses. It's literally all these competitive games. Like when I think of armor, that's the picture that pops up in my head. When you think of armor, it may be a Roman centurion. I'll give you a similar illustration. When you think of a wedding, if I told you that we were converting this room to be a, a wedding chapel this afternoon, you've automatically got a picture in your mind of a groom with some sort of nice suit or a tuxedo on and you've also got a picture in your mind of a bride maybe the last wedding dress you saw or the wedding dress that you want and you hope you get to wear one day or the wedding dress that you wore a really long time ago you get a picture of what a wedding looks like but that's not the picture that people have in Ghana because when they think of wedding this is what they think of when you mention the word wedding to someone in India it's not a tuxedo and a white dress it's this that's elaborate right when, when you mention the idea of a wedding to someone in Japan it's not long white gown. Well, that is a white gown with a fun kind of suit, but that's a totally different image. When you mention the idea of wedding to someone in Poland, it's not Vera Wang they're looking at. It's this right here. Y'all, this one's my favorite. I double dog dare somebody who's getting married next to do it the Polish way. Please put a topiary on your I love it. I think it's (laughs) the coolest thing ever. But if you say to these people, hey, we're going to a wedding this afternoon, this is what they expect to see. You, you, you look at Paul's audience of the day, a largely Gentile audience, people that weren't raised Jewish, people that weren't steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, and when you talk to them about armor, they literally picture the Roman centurions because their lands are occupied by thousands of Roman centurions. They know what a helmet looks like. They know what a breastplate looks like. They know what a belt looks like. They know what shoes look like. They know what a shield looks like. They can picture it in their minds, but if you say it to the Jew. The one who had been raised in God's word, the one who had seen the words of prophecy, the one whose grandma had told them what Isaiah said, they get a different picture in their minds. Isaiah 59, 17 says this. God, talking about the prophecy of the Messiah, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation is on his head. It's not a Roman centurion that they picture when they think about this armor. It's God himself. That makes every single piece of it sacred. That means that it's God's armor applied to our lives. It's a reminder that we don't have to put on our own righteousness. It's, it's a, a reminder that the salvation that we don is not our own. It belongs to him. The kind of salvation that you all need is not something I can give you. The kind of salvation that the world is literally hungry for is something that only God can provide. First Thessalonians, Paul's writing a letter here in chapter 5. He begins it by saying, hey, listen, we don't know the hour, we don't know the day, we don't know when Christ is coming back, but we have a salvation that is safe and secure. It fits and it covers us. And it says this in verse 9, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through who? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us 
so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. And that idea of being awake or asleep is two different metaphors working together for us. The idea of being awake can mean alert. I know where my enemy's coming from, and I'm ready for that temptation, and I will stand against the persecution. I'm ready for the attack. The idea of asleep is asleep at the wheel, and you already succumbed to sin's pressure. You already caved. Whether you're awake and alert, or whether you're asleep and falling behind, Christ's salvation covers that. We didn't earn it. We can't forfeit it. Awake or asleep literally could also mean alive or dead, like literally physically. Awake could just mean you're still alive in this life, like we all are right now. Pinch yourself. You know, okay, I'm still here. Or it could mean asleep, like you've already gone to sleep, and Christ has come back, and you're in the presence of God, and it's all the heaven and eternity. Awake or asleep, alive or dead, regardless of either. Our salvation comes from him. The idea that the helmet of salvation, the idea that salvation goes on our heads, what's inside there? It's your mind. It's a place where we want to have the mind of Christ. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's boule is. What's his will? What's his purpose? What's the full counsel? I want to know the big picture, God. The only way that I'm going to be able to know the big picture is if I literally have the renewing of my mind, the Holy Spirit working in me to transform me from the inside out and turn me into something that's different. Salvation can't just be received. It has to be applied. It has to be applied to your life. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 8, it says, For it's by grace that you've been saved, through faith, and it's not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. So that means if you have faith, there's a God who gave it. Real, authentic faith comes from Him. It's not by your works so that no one can boast. You didn't create your own righteousness, that wouldn't last. You didn't put on your own salvation, that's no good. God gave that to you. And it says in verse 10, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared. There's a purpose for all this in advance for you to do. Salvation, it's meant to implement a new way of thinking in your life. So that once you've checkmarked that box of faith and said, okay, I'm expressing faith in Jesus Christ. I know that he died on the cross to save me from my sins. I know that my life is worthless rags, but that according to his love, I've been forgiven and I stand blameless and clean before God Almighty. And he will receive me one day as his kid because Christ died for me. And I stand confident that once you've received that, then that has to be applied to every relationship, every interaction, every endeavor, every purpose, and every problem that you face in life. Ultimately, with God, it's his counsel and his mind that matters, and we want to take that mind on in our lives. Priscilla Shire, she writes in her Bible study, quoting the Lexicon Theological Workbook, that salvation is both rescue from our sin and the, the, the destiny that we were on, but also restoration, making us into something different. We need that helmet of salvation so we can be different, so that we can act different, so that we can walk different, so that we can apply differently to the world around us. And finally, we need the sword of the Spirit, which Paul writes is the Word of God. And a lot of us, we, we read that word, word, in Scripture, and we automatically go to the logos or logos. We're thinking, oh yeah, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And we think of logos as a synonym for Jesus, and we're like, okay, right here, this is what we're applying to life. And we certainly want to apply Jesus to life, but this whole sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, is not word as in logos. It's word as in rhema, which literally means spoken, uttered 
put forth word, you're going to burn alive. It's the spoken word of God in your life. Play the man. Stand strong. Put on the full armor. Take up this whole word. Apply it to your life. We need to take up the sword, the spoken word of God. And the sword is kind of cool in this picture because for the centurion, this type of sword is not the really long sword that you would imagine like King Arthur and Sir Lancelot fighting. It's certainly not a power sword because that's a reference to Power Rangers and something my little boy likes. Okay, it's not even a samurai sword. It's literally a sword only about this long. It looks like a knife or a dagger. It's for hand-to-hand combat because we're meant to engage this battle and it is a physical one and it is a fight. There is an enemy around us who wants to war with us, and we have the living, spoken word of God as a way to combat that. God's word is useful. That's in your notes today. Second Timothy it explains how it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work and every battle that lies ahead when Jesus is literally dealing with the temptations of the enemy who pulled him out into a wilderness for 40 days. He's not eating, he's fasting, and the enemy is tempting him. Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every rhema, every word that is spoken from the mouth of God. God, we need every word that comes from God in order to combat the evils in this world. God's word's useful. It's also satisfying. It's good. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen says, when your words came, I ate them. Like, I literally digested them because they were that good. They were my joy and my heart's delight. This is to be pleasing to us because it's good for us. And God's word is a really powerful weapon Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is alive and it's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The sword does a hard thing for us because it does a hard thing in us. John Piper says that swords are for killing, but not like you think. I think, unfortunately, you and I are dealing with a whole generation of believers. I'll put quotes around that. Believers in Jesus Christ who are literally out there tearing down every other person, every other part of culture, every other ideology, every other religion, every other political party, every other type of sin in the world. We're being so aggressive and even abusive towards those things. That's not the kind of sword that this is meant to be. That doesn't create more believers. It just creates more casualties of war. It's not our job to slay the world or the people around us in it. We don't grab a hold of this as an offensive weapon, even though a sword seems like an offensive weapon. Just because it's an offensive weapon, it's not our right to go out and be offensive. The demolition doesn't start out there. It starts in here. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 says, the weapons we fight with are, are, are not the weapons of the world. This is where the illustration breaks down. It's not the weapon of the world. It's on the contrary. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. Those are the ones inside my heart. Romans eight thirteen says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But by the Spirit, sword of the Spirit, if you put to death the, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. 
this, this, this word is, is meant to break down the fleshy, selfish parts of me so that I'm more equipped to go to battle for Christ. This is serious armor. It, it's advanced weaponry. And it's because we really are engaged in a serious battle that is all about next-level discipleship. This is the perfect week of the year to talk about layers, right? Because all week long, you know, you got to put on layers before you go outside, and then when you get inside, you're so hot, you got to start to shed a few layers. We've literally layered our kids up so much that they can put their arms down when they go outside to play in the snow. When they come in, we got to take off all those wet, snowy layers and dry them out before they go out again later. You, you need those layers. Well, when it comes to putting on the full armor of God, taking up the full armor of God, that doesn't come without taking off a few things first. Our malice, our selfishness, our rudeness, our pride, our arrogance, our falsehoods. We take off the old self so that we can put on the new way. And the new way includes an armor that will unite us together and make us more effective in the world at doing the thing that we're called to do, doing the thing that according to the connected dots in this word we are equipped to do, show others love. God has a, an incredible plan for us, and it's a plan that can always be accomplished better together with each member fulfilling its function far more than we ever could apart. In fact, apart from one another, that's when we're most likely to fall. We need the armor, and we need each other. We need to see how this word fits together and how God wants to use this word to fit us together in order to accomplish his will for our lives. And it's the full armor we need. Would you pray with me? Maybe for just a moment, instead of me praying, you would. That you would ask God to use his word in your life to reveal the parts that need to be cut away. To reveal the parts that need to be shed and put aside so that you can put something else on in its place. Maybe think about that armor and whether or, or, or not it's the shield of faith that you need because the devil's distractions are getting to be too much. He's pulling you in all sorts of different directions. And you're not ready for the real attack because you're so busy putting out fires everywhere else. Maybe it's the helmet of salvation and the understanding that you don't earn that yourself, but that God freely gives it to those who believe, and belief itself is a gift from him. Not by you, not by your works. You can't boast. And when that happens, your mind and everything about you changes. The way that you interact in the world becomes different because you're different. Or maybe it's the sword and how to use it. How to combat the enemy forces in this world. How to trust that God's word is enough. It's, it's useful. It's delightful. It's applicable to every situation. Sometimes I think that one of the reasons that we don't know God's purpose for our life 
is because we don't know God's word to us in life. And so maybe this week is just a renewal of your commitment to get into his word and to understand how it fits together, to connect all the dots and to see the ways that he intends for you to view this world and how he he intends for you to view his work in it. It is more than what we think. Somehow today, God can use this word to inspire you and to change you and to see something great about him. If you'll ask and you'll receive. God, it's in your holy name that we pray and to your glory that we ask you to do this work in our lives. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date on what's happening and ways you can connect. We're thankful for you.